Welcome to your Marshall Pruitt podcast and the Week in IndyCar listener Q&A show powered by you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, dear listeners. Really do enjoy this little weekly huddle of ours talking about IndyCar. Your questions, which power what we do here on our show, brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com. Uh, it just makes me happy and smile. So it's a little, what, 90-minute, two-hour sometimes, a uh, little break from, I don't know, more important things in life. Not as if this isn't important, but uh, just feels like a little bit of a family gathering. So thanks again for the cool stuff you send in every week for us to discuss. Busy week, crazy busy week so far. It's going to remain that way for a couple more days. Lots of appointments running around. But then finally, towards the end of the week, going to get to just chill and have a free weekend. The first after four busy ones, great ones before busy weekend. So looking forward to a little bit of mental downtime. Uh, For those of you who know me well, you'll know that I do struggle to turn my brain off the creative side of my noggin. So always a story to write, a something to do, a video to put together in my brain. So anyways, I'm going to try and enjoy the downtime here a little bit with the IndyCar season being over. But hey, there's still plenty happening. Working on a silly season update. I don't know if it has a ton of new information, like this person's going here or there, but there's still a lot of stuff developing. So Going to try and get that done. i uh, got a couple other things in the works here. Some uh, tough stuff coming up. Not too far in terms of a uh, memorial. So, anyways, appreciate you. And before we get into your Q&A, we're really going to do a, a quick jump into that this week. Did fly out and uh, was able to attend Robin Miller's Celebration of Life on Saturday. Uh, wow. I could spend the rest of the episode telling you about all the amazing people that were there, all the folks that I got to see that I hadn't seen for a long time. I'll mention one just because I was blown away and smiled so much because I haven't seen her in 20-ish years. But um, Marlo Klain, right? Robin's former colleague, RPM Tonight on ESPN. Marlo, she is awesome. And hadn't seen her in forever it's not like we really knew each other a bunch back when i was working on the crew side at indycar but at least you know she was around all the time great reporter great member of the community said hi once or twice in passing as you do so frequently but saw her gave her a big hug and we got a chance to uh, connect for a minute or two and, and speak and such and it was just that kind of thing right all the people you expected to be there were there. Ones are like, whoa, that is some serious firepower in terms of Roger Penske, AJ Foyt, Mario Andretti, many others. But then there were the expected friends as well. Robin's inner circle, who I was fortunate to be part of, but that circle's pretty darn big. Some of those folks who know and love and speak too frequently and others who oh amazing to see them and then again just work down the list and it's like marlo and some others like her just wow a testament to miller and the 
the things that he built in life that have permanence. The stories will be forgotten just like mine and everyone else's in time. The videos will be old and small and grainy once we get to uh, 5,000K HD in the future. You know, all the stuff that we generate in terms of work. You know, the folks who, Elio Castroneves won his fourth Indy 500 this year. Can you tell me who won the 1923 Indy 500? 1932? Like, some of you can, I get that. But just the point being... Even the folks we celebrate the most today in time, they're going to fade. The things that don't fade, at least during one's life, the connections that are built with others, and the chance to see 400 people turn out to reflect back at Miller, though he was gone, but at least reflect back what he meant to them and share and fellowship uh, that crazy guy and what he did and what he said and that time that he did this thing and so on. Wow, that was amazing. So really happy that I got to go out for that. And, you know, the amount of time that I spent speaking with Tom Anderson, former team manager of Chip Ganassi Racing that Mike Hole eventually succeeded, who went on to run Fernandez Racing and all that. I can tell you more about what Tom Anderson and his amazing photographer, IndyCar photographer wife, Cheryl D. Anderson, are doing in terms of building a new house, construction, real estate, and you name it in Florida that I ever thought I would know. But those are the kinds of little gifts you get when you come together to celebrate someone's life and connect with uh, the really cool and amazing people that you know, you knew, you hadn't seen. So, <sighs> truly appreciate my wife for saying you need to go to this you need to go 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 and so i did so huge thanks to steve shunk who really was the ringmaster for putting it all on uh he wouldn't like it to be said but that's fine uh just like miller sometimes you say the things folks don't like uh randy bernard former indycar ceo uh from well how's this everything that you saw was a result of randy making that happen um amazing so just yeah um heart was full sad but full and i'll just say this and then we'll move on and get rolling with the show definite nerves i don't know if anxiety is exactly where i'd put it but some feelings going on knowing it was coming up and then going out and then being there and right saying farewell to one of your closest friends etc etc like that that's always gonna suck (laughs) it's always gonna suck but there was also a sense of the time was right a little over a month after he passed the Sport is healthy that he helped build up over 50 years. Champion was crowned. Celebrations held in his name. The sport that he lived for, that he nourished for so many years, is in not the best place that I've ever seen it, but in the best place I have seen the modern version of it. So credit to him for helping to get it to where it is 
And when it was over, Mike Hull, good friend of the show, managing director of Chip Ganassi Racing, said, how do you feel? So do you feel like this closed the chapter in the way that it was needed to? Turn the page. You ready to move forward from this? He said, because I, I told him, con, I don't know if confided, maybe overselling it, but just shared with him that, hey, man, yeah, happy that I'm coming out, but there's a lot of emotions going on. Uh, and I'm not total, I'm still trying to figure out my place in a post Robin world. So Mike just came back afterwards, just shortly before I was leaving the little private gathering afterwards at uh, Foyt's Wine Bar. Um, said, or, you know, you feel like that closed the chapter like you thought it should for us and for yourself, and are you ready to move forward? Had to say, yeah, yeah. It took me a minute to think about it and reconcile things and add things up, and yeah, ready to move forward. All right, let's get a little uh, music bed moving in here. Just finished about a 15-minute call from a friend from the IndyCar paddock, a very drunk friend from the IndyCar paddock, calls happen more frequently than i should mention but uh yeah fun was had and i'll just keep the rest of that to myself but let's get rolling here a little bit of music bed all right so hey a couple things have happened since the season came to an end i'm gonna kick this off knowing that some of these date back to last week or so and we'll, we'll move things up a little bit get some other good items going uh our pal hrisha despond uh canciaro from reddit i believe a first-time question submitter and uh, our pal wendy car at car underscore wendy on the good old tweeters uh sent in a talk talk it keeping it in i refer to this show as my unpolished turd mistakes and all uh, a topic regarding detroit and also want to say thanks to those who persevered and sent in questions via facebook the reason i'm recording this on a tuesday night instead of a monday uh, you might have heard. Uh, good old Mark Zuckerberg forgot to put quarters in the internet machine and his website, which is always awesome, never bad, never controversial. Uh, it did not function properly. So we had to wait extra day to get all your questions in. So Rishi, Kunciaro, and Windy Carr, we're talking about Detroit. So what do you make of Penske's proposal to move Detroit off of Belle Isle and on downtown streets? Also says thoughts on the proposed circuit layout. Any memories you might have of the last time any cars ran on the downtown course. Uh, that's from Hrishi. Um, Canciaro says longtime support of the Belle Isle race. I feel the move to downtown is fine if the state is going to hassle the Penske group every year to put on an event. But the track layout that's been proposed is extremely disappointing. Doubt I'll go and watch it in person and the lack of sight lines. Uh, there, boy, it seems like a really super basic layout. Um, and then Wendy Carr talking about schedule next year, uh, says Penske is part of a double header in Detroit for years, then buys IndyCar and says he doesn't like double headers. Um, and now next year, Detroit's a single race, but I was a double header. I'm confused. Does this make any sense to you? I love this. So for, uh, some of our newer listeners who tend to open on a major topic, Visit for a little while and then get rolling with the others a little bit faster pace. Rishi, uh, the understanding that I was given, because I asked the very same question, hey, uh, Belle Isle, it's been working, why move, really was driven by the reception to Nashville, I think. Um, 
this party atmosphere. Never been a Belle Isle thing. I know that the rest of the year when indie cars aren't going around there and IMSA and Trans Am and whatever else, it's a place where Detroiters, is that the correct term? Uh, fine folks of Michigan come and enjoy one another, throw footballs around, barbecue and otherwise uh, have family gatherings, lay out on the grass, whatever. But it's never been what I would consider a proper street race if we think of all the other aspects that make a Toronto or a Long Beach or similar, what they happen to be, and that is a lot of folks coming together, party-type atmosphere, and something where the track layout is not an obstacle in that kind of party communal sense. Hey, we're all, where are we going? Let's go down to Long Beach. They might have a race going on. I don't know. There's a lot of noise, but in general, there's a lot of folks having a great time and there's a party taking place at a motor race. Never had that party aspect to Belle Isle. My first time there, I think, was 95 or 96. It's part of uh, Indy Lights support series, working with General Racing. And then more times after that, uh, many times after that. But uh, that's just never been the vibe. And the weird thing here about it, Hrishi, and I know I'm telling you things you know as someone who uh, lives and works in Michigan, is it's not like getting around Long Beach is always the easiest thing, or even Toronto, but the track layout itself is not a barrier to fun or larger gatherings. If there's a criticism uh, that we could level with Belle Isle, it's kind of a weird layout where you get folks kind of stuck over here, stuck over there. There's not a lot of big gathering points that we see break out. There are some parts of the track where you just can't get to. You're not, I mean, there's no pathway there. Um, bridge that may have been there in the past to allow folks to go, that's gone. And so it's just kind of a roped off, cordoned off thing with little pockets of people where little pockets are installed for fans to congregate. Uh, parking's never really been a super friendly thing. Got to go across the little... Uh, bridge to get there. Uh, I love the place. So please understand, I don't necessarily want to go away from Belle Isle. Perfectly honest, a lot of the folks in IndyCar that I've known for a long time, whether it's crew, drivers, media, whatever, there are not a lot of folks who get fired up to go to Detroit for the Belle Isle weekend every year. I have. I love Detroit, love Belle Isle. Um, it's a guy who spent a lot of his life in San Francisco, both in the <clears throat> nicer areas and the less nicer areas. I'm not a person who dislikes the grittier side of town. Um, so Detroit's always made a lot of sense to me. That being said, the idea of, hey, could we replicate Nashville? 
not exactly, but is there something we could do with this Roger Penske, uh, Penske Entertainment promoted event? Is there something we could do that would maybe put this in a better environment where we could make this more of a true downtown party engagement kind of thing? They were never going to solve that at Belle Isle. So if you want to see if you could make that happen and say, just come here, come in, walk in, get up close. Uh, I was told approximately 50% of the track, this proposed circuit is meant to have open sight lines, as in you don't need to buy a ticket to spectate in approximately 50% of the areas where the cars are running. I was told there will be some, I don't know what to call it, but viewing platforms and some other things made where, hey, greater person from Michigan or Canada or Windsor or whomever, wherever, whatever, if you happen to be here and walking along and hear racing noises and want to watch or are curious, please buy a ticket. We'd love to have you on the inside, but we're going to make it open enough to where you could stand and watch and don't. I don't think those spots are necessarily going to be the best viewing positions. You wouldn't expect that, but that just speaks to me as a attempt to build a fan base, a bigger fan base than what they've had with those limited pockets of seating and whatnot that we've seen strewn around Belle Isle. Maybe we could jumpstart something in downtown Detroit and see if we could get a bit of a festival environment going on. Will that work? No clue. <laughs> Obviously, I can't predict the future. Wish I could, but I can't, so I won't. But I can tell you that if they did nothing other than go back to Belle Isle every year, we'd have what we have. I can't imagine there have been massive profits generated from it, but I haven't seen like really impressive growth. Like, oh my goodness, every grandstand is full. It's standing room only. We can't pack any more people in here. Haven't seen that. Wanted to see it. Haven't seen it. So if we're honest and say chances of this truly blowing up and taking off in ways that it hasn't for the past quite some time. I like the idea, Rishi, of rolling the dice a little bit, trying something different. And if it was not going to turn out the way that they want, we'll see. I'd have to imagine they can go back to Belle Isle. So, Again, could be wrong about that, but this almost feels like a no-risk type thing. And if it happens in a successful manner, and they have a lot of people turn up, and it does build into something where you go, oh, sustainable, and more people, and we're sending more money to local hotels and restaurants and this, that, and the other, we're really concentrated in a, a downtown local hub type area, I think that's going to be pretty darn awesome. And we're going to look back and say, great idea. Glad you did it. As for the track layout, <laughs> uh, have plenty of memories uh, about the former layout, the Formula One layout, which I loved, watched every just about every year. 
cart going there for a brief period after F1 left, moved to Phoenix. Uh, I really love the layout. I thought it was a challenging course, uh, had some demanding sections where you tested yourself. I thought there was something there. I don't see a lot of that in the new proposed circuit. Um, it looks like a 80s, early 90s, going to a very strange town somewhere in the Midwest or the South or some place where you go, motor racing? <laughs> it has the look of a we're going to Des Moines, which actually used to be a street race for a number of years and was somewhat popular. But it has a look of we're going somewhere where racing isn't really a thing. And the local supervisors or mayor, or whatever, doesn't want us to go and do this route and that route and have to shut off a bunch of streets here and there. We just let's how do we keep it really simple and small? minimal impact on uh, our little city here. And it looks like that exact kind of thing from the eighties and early nineties for like a support race. Hey, the Atlantics or Indy lights or the race trucks or some kind of second tier series is going to put on a street race in a place where racing just isn't a thing. And here's the highly unimaginative layout. I'm positive that if I were to speak with Detroit Grand Prix chairman, Bud Denker or someone else, they'll give me 47 different reasons as to why this modern proposed layout is what it is and that it probably can't be anything else. Just say this for what we've seen in this proposal, it did not light my expectations for amazing racing. And I can tell you that of the few drivers, and it's very few drivers that I've spoken with or who frankly brought it up to me, um, their expectations for awesome racing somewhat low because it's a lot of go fast in a straight line, break, turn left, go fast in a straight line, break, turn left. I know that that's a pretty heavy component of most street races. So that part's expected, but feels like the track is pretty much nothing but that so that's the last part here to cover off um so for this to work for this to be the downtown revitalization more fans party atmosphere carnival and all that kind of stuff the racing's got to be good too right like i realize a lot of folks that might show up might have never seen a race might not understand what makes a race great or not great if there's a lot of crashes well yeah like nashville that could probably get some people excited a little bit maybe who knows but for the people who buy tickets for such a thing they tend to know the sport understand it a little bit and have some kind of expectation and if it's just a poor race because the track's pretty boring and not a lot of passing happens and eh, it's kind of a low ambition layout that's not going to get people coming back. So while I think the potential is high for success, the track layout is the one thing and well spotted by all of you and others who've said the same thing. Huh? I don't know if this is the one, but 
Again, we will find out here. Wendy Carr, you had a question that kind of spun it out just a little bit out of specifically Detroit, but uh, you're mentioning the doubleheader is going away. Um, Roger being the one having the ongoing doubleheader and then giving that up. And, but hey, I was coming back and they get a doubleheader. What is that? Yeah, so interesting there. Discuss this very briefly, I think, on a somewhat recent episode. So I don't want to go back over all that here, but there was a lot of WTF from team owners, team managers, specifically after Iowa was announced, all based on them telling me they had been given a, quote, promise that IndyCar would abandon doubleheaders. Teams are tired of them. Crews are tired of them. The wear and tear on the cars, just seasons longish to begin with. And then throwing in double headers is just a grind, uh, a real grind. So general overall agreement, double headers weren't going to be a thing anymore, especially on ovals, knowing that if you have a significant crash in round one, depending upon the oval, but there, there's almost no such thing as a small oval crash if we have a big one on saturday uh sunday could either be in in jeopardy uh or it's going to be some sort of serious backup car or who knows if our drivers hurt like just let's not do those anymore so that was heated with detroit falling from a double header to a single header but then the fact that the one double header that was maintained was indeed on an oval uh, to quote Juan Montoya, it is what it is. It's a done deal. I know for sure and can say for sure feedback has been received by IndyCar from an overwhelming majority of folks who put the cars and drivers and crew and everyone on track to make the motor races that they really do not want this to continue after the Iowa doubleheader was revealed. So IndyCar, I know, does its best to listen to its paddock. Does that mean they listen to everything they say and do everything they're asked to do? No, that would maybe be uh, not the most practical expectation. But if you were told, we're not doing any more ovals, or doubleheaders, especially on ovals, and then one pops up, maybe some folks have a reason to be a little bit grumpy. All right, we are going to move to a question that is not about IndyCar, but it's sent in by one of the leaders of our Pruday listener group, that being John Wojnar. Uh, he says, MP, very rarely will I discuss NASCAR, but how about that Bubba Wallace win? So I was hoping to get your thoughts on it. It says, praying for you and your family. Thanks. Mr. who I call Ranjao, because I couldn't really pronounce his name Wojnar correctly for a long time, so somehow saying it backwards made sense to me. Just super happy for him. Uh, I know that you know, in a bigger bigger sense, obviously, culturally, Bubba winning, being a actual winner of a NASCAR race, is the kind of thing that can accelerate inclusion in the sport stating some things that are obvious here, but you asked, so I'll say them. Uh, the same way that we were hoping for Danica to win 
for Sarah Fisher to win, for Lynn St. James to win, and Simona Danica obviously was able to get her win. But the same kind of thing we hope for there because, hey, half the world is women, and there's by no means even the most minimally acceptable amount of women in motor racing. So could Danica help turn that tide as whether it's driver, owner, engineer, mechanic, whatever, and clearly she's had an effect. Uh, most, not all, but most of the, the young women involved in racing, grassroots level on up, uh, will often cite Danica in some way, shape, or form as an inspiration or motivation or just proof of like, hey, yeah, uh, I belong there too. So the thing I hope for is, and I think many people hope for, is we get to a place soon in the world where, hey, a black guy wants something in motor racing, a woman wants something in motor racing, a run down the list of ethnicities, um, sexualities, just ever like, Hey, like this is all normal. I want all those things to be normal. Won't make them less special, but just that's the thing that I've dreamt of hope for and tried to help with wherever possible since I got into racing in my mid teens. Cause that just happens to be kind of a more normal environment that I've grown up with, uh, of all people kind of around you. And that being normal, not just one kind of person. So it excites me. Last thing I can say on this, and this is maybe the only original thought I can offer, because I think everything else I said has probably been said by a million people already. It's that I'm happy for Bubba that he became a winner. Know the circumstances, rain delay, all those things. Don't care about that. Um, one of those drivers that clearly has talent, but I wasn't sure if he had race winning talent. Does one win cement him as future NASCAR champion, all time great in the making? 100% not. <laughs> if you run down the list of single race winners in NASCAR, F1, IndyCar, whatever, I, I doubt if we're going to find any Hall of Famers. But I feel happy for him, John, that he's gotten that win. Now comes the pressure to get a second, hopefully not with a rain, snow, or frogs falling from the sky delay. But this question at least has been erased. I hope for his sake he can add one or two more at minimum and become even bigger of an influence and even bigger rallying point for those who might not look like the traditional model of what folks think a race car driver is or has been and connect with more. Do I think it's pretty awesome that Lewis Hamilton won his 100th? Again, it's mind-blowing. Lewis Hamilton won his 100th Formula One race. And right after that, Bubba Wallace won his first. I just think that's so cool. Um, I think it's so cool. And I hope this isn't his only win. Because, wow, 
Uh, you talk about heaviness weighing on you. Someone who won a race that can be explained away as a, quote, lucky win by those who want to diminish him. Not saying they're accurate, just saying that if this is the only win that he has, I will be left with the eternal memory of Danica Patrick and her win at Motegi being dismissed. Fuel race. She happened to win because Elio ran out. It was a gift. It was this. It was that. I wish for Danica's sake she was able to win another race and win it by kicking everyone's backside. No questions can be posed. Earned it a thousand percent. Not saying she didn't earn her win a thousand percent or Bubba didn't earn it, but no questions possible. I hope that while she didn't have that, Bubba can get another win at least. So there's no doubt about whether he belongs among NASCAR's winners uh, and earns greater greater fame and hopefully more folks that want to come to our sport. Let's go to Aaron Adams. I love this. I love this. These words make me so happy. Hey, MP, first time asking a question. Always appreciate those of you who are either new listeners, sending in items, or those who've been with us for a while who uh, decide to peek out and send something in. Always makes me happy. Uh, Aaron says, new fan to IndyCar. I was wondering, is the race engineer the crew chief, or is that a different position? Super, super awesome question, Aaron. So here in IndyCar, and this is different from a NASCAR um, maybe even NHRA where the crew chief is also the person making the performance adjustments on the vehicle. Uh, and that's not always hundred percent the case, but just for the most part, that's the way it is. Uh, in IndyCar, these are two completely different roles. So for the sake of, of maybe mental clarity, cause I do this for myself sometimes, uh, I think of an IndyCar crew chief as the chief mechanic. And I know I probably write the, uh, the expression crew chief and don't help those who aren't exactly sure how that fits into uh, the model of team structure. But uh, crew chief here is chief mechanic. Mechanic being the operative word. So that person is the one in charge of the vehicle, in charge of making the performance adjustments the race engineer calls for, is responsible for the crew that works on the car. So preparing the vehicle, making sure all the nuts and bolts are not only in place, but tight, making sure that the car is aligned, set up to the race engineer's uh, specifications, uh, in charge of looking after the driver's needs. Do the pedals need to be adjusted? Is the seat need a little tweak? Do the seat belts need a little thing? Do we need to change where the button is on the steering wheel or put a little piece of grip here? That just, right? Overall responsibility for the vehicle and the performance settings given to them by the race engineer. Race engineer, typically, while they might touch the car at times, it's more of a leaning on it, <laughs> um, sitting on it kind of thing. 
not someone who will grab a wrench, a screwdriver, or anything else and make any real manipulations directly to the vehicle. There's a, a pretty good separation here of I'm in charge of making the car go fast. You are in charge of the vehicle and taking whatever I tell you that I hope is going to make it go fast and applying that to the car so it does. So that's what we have here in IndyCar, Aaron. Uh, there are sub positions as well. You have the crew chief slash chief mechanic. You will then often have a lead mechanic that works directly with the, uh, the crew chief slash chief mechanic. Keep in mind that the, the person who is in charge of the car with it most of the time, but not always, could be sitting in on some engineering debriefs or team leadership meetings. And, you know, there, there's it is a managerial role on top of being a mechanical role. Uh, in the absence of the chief mechanic being there with the car to do things, you don't want all activity to stop. So that's where having a lead mechanic, the, uh, the chiefs call it number two, um, there, that's a pretty normal thing. Race engineers will in IndyCar, just about every instance, I almost can't think of any that don't, will have a assistant engineer. That person's often responsible for looking after the computer systems, the data acquisition, uh, the radios, possibly fuel strategy and measurement and there's some other roles, so we won't get into all of them right now. Feel free to send in more questions, Aaron. we got a lot of time to fill during the offseason, but love the question. And as I continue to move forward, knowing that we don't have Robin with us, who's often really great at doing this, that is explaining the sport, answering questions, whether it's complex or I'm just learning about this stuff, as you've mentioned, um, I just want to keep doing more of this and doing more. So to you, Aaron, and to the rest of you who are listening, got questions that aren't necessarily topical about what happened this week, but more of like, hey, what's this thing? How does it work or whatever? Send them in. If I can't answer them, I'll tell you. If I'm just ignorant, I'll tell you. But I'll do my best to get some answers for you. Uh, we're going to go to Max Camposano uh, and TJ Tommy as well. Uh, TJ, and I'm saying TJ, but it's JT. Um, sorry. Uh, asking similar questions here. And we're going to go with Max first. Says, MP, what is a moment this year that put the biggest grin on your face? Was it a first win for someone? Elio's fourth win at Indy. This felt like there were several good moments sprinkled in this year. Hope you and your wife are doing well. Also mentions that uh, he just ordered some cartoon anvil protection stickers, and I'm looking forward to slapping one of my team's Formula SAE car once it's done. Well, I love that, Max. Um, sidebar here, would love to hear more about your Formula SAE activities. Something that, having been involved in racing since I was like 15 or 16, uh, and just right into it, open wheel racing and there were sports cars in there too, but you know, kind of full throttle from the time I was in, uh, barely into high school. 
Formula SAE was never a thing because I never went to college at a young enough age to where there would have been a program. And when I did go to college later in life, uh, University of San Francisco didn't have a Formula SAE program. But I'm always fascinated to learn about it, see the cars, which are awesome. Uh, so tell me more. Um, would love to just learn more about uh, whichever school you're a part of here and what you guys are doing. Um, biggest grin had to be Elio's win because it just felt like a fantasy. It felt like Disney, a scripted event. And it was the great release that I think all of us needed in IndyCar after a tough year with COVID, all the deaths, right? Seems like, seems like all of us know someone. And if not a person who was lost to COVID, we're connected to somebody, whether it's a family member or a friend, a lot of loss, a lot of things that we gave up, weren't able to do and closed in and sheltered and had to run the Indy 500 in 2020 without fans. So this to me just felt like everything that was replenishing and good and a fairy tale finish for Elio to get his fourth Indy 500 win and join this club, the only club he's ever wanted to be a part of, the four-timers. So it will be hard to think of anything else that tops that. I would say that some of the first-time wins as well. How can you not be happy for Renus VK to be awesomely fast and to get his first win? And for Alex Pelot to win right out of the gate and keep winning? And for Pato Award to win and then win again? Um, and for Colton Herta, who by no means got his first win, maybe sent reminders to the new winners that like, Hey, I might actually be younger than a couple of you, but I've got a year or two more experience than the rest of you. And yeah, uh, you're going to be going through me for a while. Like I just love that dynamic max that while we have the Dixons and the new gardens and Rossies and some of those who are kind of 30 ish and older, uh, who are hopefully going to be around for a long, long time. We have this freaking Viper's nest. Is it a nest for Vipers? I don't know. I'll go with it. This Viper's nest of youth that is lethal. And so Renus as a winner, Pato as a winner, Colton continuing to win, Polo winning races and a championship in his second attempt. <sighs> youth broke through this year while I believe the oldest driver in the field gave us the most memorable result we could ask for. Um, just magical. Uh, JT, Tommy, as I say that correctly, uh, your question of who surprised you the most in 2021? Huh. I want to go with Jimmy Johnson, having seen how far he got over the last couple of races, knowing where he started, having watched him just 
not in a great and confidence-inspiring place when he started his testing, serious testing program last year, and I think November it was, when I saw him uh, at Laguna Seca running there. <clears throat> then watching him for most of the season. There was obvious improvement, but it made me question as to whether there was really something major that was going to be gotten by the end. Like, he's going to get better, but is that destination going to be like, and hey, you're two spots in front of last. We know that Ganassi builds a good car, three cars in the uh, top six in the championship and the title. So again, we know that Jimmy was driving a mighty fine motor racing vehicle. Don't want to say, though, that that was the reason for him to run as well as he did towards the end of the year. So, yes, uh, a pair of 17ths to close the year. Like, do we celebrate that? Is that amazing? Do we, we throw a party? No. But the guy was really driving and showing us that there's something there. So if I had to do the what I witnessed with my own eyes in November to the guy that I saw at Long Beach in September the following year, unrecognizable. So I can't wait to see what next year holds for him. I can't wait to see if the guy who was pretty solid P17 out of, you know, 24, 26, 28 cars, if that guy can become a P13, P12, 13, 14 at half the races, a third of the races. If he can do that next year, I think that is going to be a phenomenal season-to-season upgrade for him. Don't know if we're going to be talking about running in the top 10 on pure pace because getting to 17th is a serious achievement. Getting to the mid-teens, lower teens, like that's just nastiness waiting for you. I'll just mention some of the names in that spot, in those spots right now. Uh, Sebastian Bourdais, P16. We know that Romain Groschal did not do all the races, but he was so good in the ones that he did, he was up to 15th in the standings. Scotty McLaughlin, another rookie, but again, a, a lifelong road racer. P14. Jack Harvey, P13. Renus, 12th. Some of those folks are going to be moving up and doing better. And, you know, there'll be a little bit of shuffling here. But just if Jimmy can finish in that general 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th area on a somewhat regular basis, that's going to be a phenomenal uh, demonstration of improvement for him. If he were to do a third season, which, you know, he's mentioned he's not limiting himself to two years. Uh, do I think he could get closer to the top 10 and maybe flirt just inside the top 10? I do. Based on what I saw at the end of this year, I do think that's possible, JT. Do I think that he's going to push beyond that and say, hey, Rossi, Power, Pagano, Herta, Dixon, etc., etc., move out of the way? I think that might be a little too much to ask. 
not because he doesn't have the talent or outright potential. How high are you going to go in your mid to late 40s with two to three years of experience against folks who are just assassins and have been an open wheel for their entire lives? There's a bit of a reality check that needs to be done here. But I wouldn't count the guy out from really and truly impressing us heavily once he returns uh, for year two. Uh, why don't we go to our pal J.J. Gertler? How you doing, J.J.? Uh, let's see. You are saying, Marshall, so often we see team owners trying for a mix of experience and youth, experience to help build the team, youth to learn from uh, that experience and carry things forward in the future. He asks, is Meyershank Racing pairing Elio and Simon Pagino all about getting his team up to the curve even faster? Or was he just thinking, who is the best driver available to me today? Wow, there's a lot of ways to answer this, JJ. Uh, what comes to mind is the off-season player movements in football, basketball, whatever. When you hear folks talking about, do they want to win today or are they going to build for the future? Um, this feels very much like a win now at the slight expense of the future move. Mike kind of said that to to us, to me, in a, the video interview that we did um, at Long Beach that we ran when the uh, news made official on Simon. couple things here. If you look at the sponsors on the car, you look at Sirius, you look at Auto Nation, we know that the Liberty Media Group has invested into uh, into what they're doing. These are some pretty big companies, pretty big people who have extremely high expectations for return on investment. Speaking nothing the least bit critical about my man, Jack Harvey. Uh, the Shank team, yeah, boy, they, they goofed a few too many times on race strategy. As I wrote in my cool-down lap from Long Beach where none of us could figure out what they were thinking by leaving Elio out uh, when everybody else pitted early in the race and then did it again, strictly a mistake. Uh, just oops, right? But there were numerous times where the exceptionally talented Jack Harvey should have been in a much higher finishing position than he was. I don't know if a win was really on the cards for Jack in the uh, number 60 MSR Honda entry this year, but he had a pair of fourth-place finishes, and it seems like there should have been three to five other podiums at least. Again, whether it was a win or not, Jack on the podium, spraying champagne, all the logos and everything being seen, having great stuff to send back to the sponsors and say, hey, here we are, yet again. Lots of screen time because we were running up front and the cameras always tend to focus on the uh, the cars at the front. And here we are with the great photos of him on the podium and doing all kinds of great stuff in the press conference. Like, show you what we're getting for you. Didn't happen enough this year. Granted, they won the Indy freaking 500, so that's amazing. Obviously, I don't need to go into that. But that's also a, can you really bank on that year after year being the big media hit? No, you can't. 
So what you're looking for is the sustained return on investment, the sustained value. And knowing that the team, which would admit it themselves, Mike admitted it uh, in our little video interview, there weren't enough of those days. So I think there's a, a big thing at play here, JJ, of Simon, Indy 500 winner, series champion, higher profile guy to go with Elio. Um, we should be able to get a lot more podiums than we did. Assuming that there's some adjustments made on the strategery side as well. Um, you know, there needs to be some team evolution to match the uh, addition of a, another Indy 500 winner and another champion. I'm saying Elio's champion based on both Indy lights and his IMSA title, but team is not going to magically be running for victories everywhere they go just because they have Simon and Elio together. Team definitely has to step up in multiple areas, but they're capable of doing that, so that's great. But I would say, JJ, view this very much as we need to show and prove that we can be good now and we can go and achieve more now. And Simon is someone who is young enough, what is he, 36, 37, where he's got however many more years he wants, three, four, five, could be longer than that. Elio, I don't know how long his contract is. Is he a more than one year, maybe two as a full-timer? I don't know. That, that strikes me like you know there is going to come a time here soon where maximum effectiveness will you know something we would need to question it happens to every driver once they get into the mid to late 40s uh, it's again it's just a thing it's not an elio thing it's just a thing simon in theory then become the team veteran lead it post elio he may become the leader instantly again but just saying we know Elio is the, the true veteran of age and, and more achievement, at least in terms of race wins and Indy 500 victories. I think Mike has, we're going to stack the deck now in stature, profile, and success with these two former Team Penske folks. Don't know how long the runway is going to be for Elio after 2022, maybe 2023. Simon, assuming he wants to stay, would be the perfect person to fall into that true team veteran role and name the driver. Uh, Kiko Porto, <laughs> your new USF 2000 champion. Is he the one just uh, beating up the world in Indy Lights and coming up to IndyCar and future champion in the making? And guess what? Kid, you got an opportunity here to, uh, to drive from Meyershank Racing and learn from Simon Pagano. You know, I think that's the direction Mike is going. Jim Meyer is going here. Uh, last quick thing, just just to throw in, just to consider. Don't underestimate Jack Harvey's value off the track as well. Uh, sponsors dream. Uh, a team first guy sponsor first guy uh, brought all kinds of people together to make this Meyershank racing IndyCar program possible um, on top of being very rapid on the racetrack knowing that 
his successors are going to have to uh, match that. I think they'll be able to, right? Elio and Simon, not too bad at driving Indy cars. Let's just not underestimate how good Jack was with sponsors, keeping the business side in a happy place. That's going to be a little bit of a challenge, too, to think about. So, yeah, I'm cautiously optimistic, a phrase that I hate, but I'm cautiously optimistic about where MSR is headed next year with Simon bringing one aspect to a level that they've never had, and that is the technical-slash-engineering leadership and guidance from the cockpit. Not that his race engineer will just be receiving instructions from him on what to do, but Elio's never been known as a real super high feedback and feel guy from the inside the car. Jack's reputation is for being very good, but Simon's reputation is like elite, you know, pantheon level of, wow, this guy can break down everything, knows exactly what he wants, what he doesn't want, and is going to be a, a significant addition in that area of their program. So assuming, JJ, that MSR gets all that from Simon, they're able to ratchet up the speed of the cars, consistency of the cars, with Simon playing a, a great role in that area. Some of the, when the race happens, we have decisions to make from pit lane, and let's stop making the wrong ones, assuming all that goes where it needs to be. Um, it's hard not to feel pretty happy about where they're going. Are they going to get it all next year? Of course not. But are they going to get it? Yeah, I think they are. Uh, Daniel Summerskill. How you doing, Daniel? Say, if Kyle Kirkwood, our brand new Indy Lights champ, congratulations, Kyle, by the way. He was just our guest last week. Uh, if he's unable to get a full-time drive in any car, would it be possible for Andretti Autosport to utilize, say, the number 98 car, if Marco isn't coming back, for the race entries he has earned for being the Indy Lights champion, or is it more likely Kyle would be an IMSA? Can't talk about everything here, but I can tell you this. I will be shocked, Daniel, if Kyle is not in IndyCar doing at minimum the whatever it is, three to four races, Indy 500 plus a couple more that uh, come with the advancement prize for winning the Indy Lights title. I would also be suitably surprised if he isn't doing more than those races uh, and with Andretti Autosport. So could he go elsewhere? Potentially. Michael made it very clear, wrote that little story about he wants to hold on to him. Michael wasn't like, yeah, we'd like to hold on to him. Michael was like, we don't want to let that kid go. <laughs> like, no, 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 no. Um, that means something. So it also means that for other teams that might have an interest, Michael would not be rushing to say yes. Does that mean things could run into the offseason a little bit longer than anyone would want while waiting to see what kind of budget could be found and so on? It's very possible. Um, this is not a guy, though, who just because another team is calling and inquiring is going to get the green light from Michael to head out the door. So that's the only little complication I can think of. Um, for those who might want him, mentioned before that, uh, written before that I know the Vassar Sullivan folks 
really would love to have Kyle uh, in an Indy car. Well, awesome. Uh, I'd love to see that too if a Andretti Autosport uh, deal isn't possible. But do I think Michael's just going to let him go there because they've asked without waiting until the bitter end? Uh, if he is, if Michael's unable to find the money, I do not. So that's why I'm more than curious to see Daniel how the next month or so plays out, and uh, if and where Kyle's future might be confirmed. So yeah, if you're looking for his autograph. Definitely plan on on getting it at an IndyCar race next year. I just don't know how many, but yeah. If he's not there, I'm going on strike. I would, I'm going to threaten to go on a hunger strike. I hope all of you are laughing right now because that's kind of a funny concept. But yeah, this kid, this kid, this Kirkwood kid has the feel of yet another mercenary that could be an IndyCar giving all the young generation new generation drivers i mentioned fits as well not right out of the gate but yeah uh i hope we aren't talking about kyle kirkwood in the number such and such nascar camping world truck series or whatever uh nothing gets that series although i could care less about it all right we're gonna go to jordan darwin you're asking a very salient question here and I will answer it with as much truthiness as I can without being mean. Uh, you say, Marshall, Jack Harvey's taking Sato's seat at RLL. Always struck me as Takuma. Well, he's just had to be retiring, right? So sponsorship has never seemed to be an issue with Taku. And even though RLL was winless in 2021, Sato is RLL's only winner from 2018, 2019, and 2020. Uh, of course, his last... Win was only 14 months ago, where he, of course, won the 8500. Says RLL letting go of Honda's favorite son and their only driver with wins in this UAK 18 bodywork era is just puzzling. Says, what is the skinny, big man? All right, I like that. That's a bit of a, a great little play on words and, and yet another fat joke, which I deserve because I need to be less fat. Here are the things that I can't tell you jordan if i've written all these things or not um i don't always remember with total clarity about what i've written because i tend to write a lot and i don't know i wrote it so i don't really consider it that memorable or meaningful to hold on to i guess takuma sato was supposed to be done with ray hall letterman lanigan racing at the end of the 2020 season sato's journey in the rll family finished at the end of 2020 possibly done with indycar altogether then he wins the indy 500 no way you're going to retire head into the sunset uh, off of an indy 500 win from a promotional standpoint for honda for indycar for the team not an option so as i understand it and as would make sense, the guy who was supposed to be done at the end of the year that he ended up winning the Indy 500 was given another year. Celebrate uh, Champions Tour, Victory Tour, you name it. But that was meant to be it, the end of 2021. When I started hearing about that, it's when I started mentioning that. Um, 
put that in numerous silly seasons uh, updates and so on. Um, so there's that. I'll get to the why because there's some answers that I can provide, but I wouldn't pretend to know everything. But while he did win in 2020, I would say that there was a general feeling that his sharpest days may have been in the past. Now, anybody who's won an IndyCar race in any season, you would have to say, well, unless all the other cars fell out, they have to be pretty darn good. Indeed, no question. Uh, And what he followed that up with, I think, uh, second at Gateway, right? Charging like heck, the first Gateway, I believe. So he had, you know, one or two podiums last year. It was his best season in terms of finishing position in the championship. He was seventh. I'd also just say that coming into 2020, coming off of 2019, where he did manage to win two races, had a couple other podiums, right? I think, again, the general feeling coming out of 2019, where it was expected or decided, or however I should phrase it, that next one's going to be the last tour that... While he finished ninth in the standings, won a couple of races, was competitive at a few others, I think there just might have been a few too many races where there was a Mr. Invisible award awaiting him at the end of the event. You were at the race, not really in the race. So I know, this is a guy who won the Indy 500 in 2017 and Got a win for RLL at Portland in 2018. Bit of a, you know, yellow flag scenario. Again, I get that. And Fortune played to his hand. And, you know, just like Bubba Wallace winning, you go, hey, that's how the race played out. You know, there might have been a couple extenuating circumstances, but you were there to win when it mattered. So we can't, you know, can't reduce the value. And then winning another race or two in 2019, you know, uh, guy was definitely doing super well but i think that's where the first inkling of if it's an either or situation you're either having a really good day you know 15 percent of the time 20 percent of the time who knows maybe even 25 percent of the time but the other 50 75 percent kind of don't know what we're going to get from you rol's a really cool team with a lot of really awesome people on pit lane, on the timing stand, in the ownership group, you name it. They're also real hardcore racers. Uh, Bob Ray Hall doesn't fuel himself on hope. Uh, of course, you can insert some questions about Graham not winning races over the last couple of years, and I, I totally get that. Park that for another time. Takuma, someone who... I've never known the budget to be brought, the budget that's been given to go along with Takuma to be an incredible, oh my God, nobody could turn that down amount. So if you're not getting super rich and while you're getting, again, got those couple wins, couple podiums in 2019, but the first kind of spark of like, yeah, but there's a lot of other races too. Um, I think that plants a seed 
And so I think that leaves folks saying, okay, well, maybe we need to start looking. Maybe we need to end this. I think that's the, the root of things, Jordan. Windy 500 win changes things drastically. Staying on for another year. Takuma said, I think any and everyone would say, this season was a real disappointment. Um, no podiums. No wins. Had, I think, what, a fourth at Detroit? So wasn't too far from the podium on one occasion. You know, had a decent amount of top tens. I'd say the overarching thing, though, is I don't recall a race this past season where I thought, felt, or just had a hint that Takuma was really in the frame for a win. Um, Add that on top of a concern that might have grown in 2019 that was meant to be, well, we're going to finish this off at the end of 2020 and maybe go with someone new or younger. And then we get another year and well, that other year is actually just not that great. And it looks like winning is really truly a significant uh, challenge compared to something that came a little bit easy on occasion the last couple years. And, and this is maybe another big thing to factor in, while Takuma's responsible for all of their wins over the last couple of years, yeah, Graham might not have a victory in a while, but man, that guy wore out the top four, five, or six, um, had a terrible Indy 500, which certainly hurt him in the standings, but ended up finishing seventh in the championship. Um, had a couple of really bad races that, that hurt his chances. But this year, even though we're not talking about, oh my gosh, Graham was just on the cusp of a title. He drove his behind off. He definitely told us that he has plenty left in the tank. He's plenty motivated and he's one of the best game day performers we have usually driving from farther back in the field than he wants to or should. But nonetheless, he showed us something. I don't know if we saw anything from Takuma on any kind of sustained level that told us he is ready to go toe to toe with Graham and be P six in the standings in front of him or P eight. Eleventh is not terrible. But if you're not getting super wealthy and growing and building the program for the future with your second full-time car, and there's the potential for a Jack Harvey or similar younger gun, but definitely few, you know, some years of experience, not going to have to teach you much, if anything. And we think you being in our car can, you know, really light the fire and hit the afterburner and off we go. I'd throw all those things together, Jordan, and say that's that's why uh, Takuma's he's moving on, but it's not by choice. We'll say that we've read, heard, whatnot that he is uh, you know high, high probability of going to coin. I hope that happens for him. It's a pretty steep fall off in terms of team and potential. Not saying Coin's a bad team by any means. Obviously, uh, Groschon just did s- stellar things this year as a rookie. 
his race engineer is not staying at that team. So that's a void. So not only is the car that Roman drove available for Takuma, but there's also a really important spot on the timing stand that is empty. Who knows if and what might happen there, if it all comes together. Uh, if it is, I've heard that, you know, I'm on the lookout um, for could there be some real news coming here soon? Um, but there'd certainly be some some major questions to answer if he joins COIN and who would be on that timing stand to make sure that he goes forward and is capable of continuing the uh, really high, high bar that Romas set for this season. So we think about Elio coming back, right? Not all of his races during the, the, the six with Shank were super awesome. Obviously did pretty good at the 500. Uh, qualified incredibly well for Long Beach. Bit of a Long Beach specialist for sure. Like that's one of the tracks historically where you go, man, that guy is always, um, always killing it there. Uh, but we know that he's capable of delivering at a high level um, for a while longer. I don't think Sato uh, has run out of, of passion, run out of talent, run out of any of those things. Was never a big fan of his in Formula 1. I was a fan of his in British Formula 3. Wasn't a huge fan in Formula 1. Certainly wasn't a fan when he came to IndyCar. Uh, just kind of hapless and, you know, despite being the world's nicest person, I don't cover the sport, love the sport because someone's nice and just been so happy to see in the latter stages of his career. He has become so much more winning more and more races and being a contender while things have gone a little bit astray in the last year, two years with Ray Hall. Uh, I do hope he can have a final chapter with coin that is rewarding and fulfilling and honors him and his contribution to IndyCar. He's given us a lot, especially as I mentioned in recent years, he's really become a formidable, formidable driver and his popularity, those Indy 500 wins, like he's really something. Um, I don't want to see this end badly by either not getting a chance in IndyCar to continue or in a situation where he's with a team but doesn't have the uh, necessary uh, on-track performance support to deliver uh, another win or some more podiums to go out really in, in high style. Uh, Len R. at Grendel81 from Twitter says, What's the word on French fries? Sebastian Bourdais. Well, he's a sexy, skinny little uh, sip of France. I can say that. Uh, no word there. Uh, I'm hoping to get more words, Len. But yeah, for those of you who are like me, who really want to continue the hamburger and french fry show in the IndyCar paddock, uh, yeah, uh, like you, I am waiting to hear, waiting to learn. Can't wait to get some answers. All right, Len, you also asked, how is Jack Aroot doing? I have no idea. Uh, if he's not doing well, then that's my ignorance because I just simply have no idea. So I apologize. 
Uh, I'm going to do that old fast forward, press the throttle here to get through a bunch and rapid fire, hopefully. And it's 8.40 p.m. on a Tuesday night, and I need to get dinner going for Mrs. Pruitt and I. Uh, let's see, at X3TR, x 3 tr also known as Amok, Amok, Amok from Twitter, you asked, did the chicken limo have to pass tech inspection before it was let out onto the track at IMS for Alex Pelot to drive? And if not, will the fastest lap count? It will not. I'll also tell you, uh, having heard, read, whatever that Pelot was indeed going to do laps around IMS uh, in the, quote, chicken mobile, the only chicken mobile that is real and has a permanent tech sticker on it, always passing, is Tommy Kendall's. It's the original. Um, this chicken limo thing, basically just stealing the concept, uh, bolting the chicken head and tail and feathers onto the top of a limo. That's like the IRL version of a chicken mobile compared to the cart IndyCar series version that Tommy Kendall has. So it's actually a full disqualification Actually, I need to talk to Polo because there's some penalty points we need to apply to his competition license. He never should have climbed into that, and he knows better. Uh, let's see. John Illick, you say, if an IndyCar version of the TV show almost... F- no, not TV show. I, I read this as absolutely fabulous. I don't know why. Um, if the IndyCar version of Almost Famous is made about Robin Miller... Who would play Robin and who would play you? Oh, boy. Uh, Who would play Miller? You know, my my brain went towards Gene Hackman, who I don't think is still alive, so that would be a problem. But if he is, I apologize, Gene. Um, The quirkiest best actor I can think of that might fit Miller, but we'd have to age him a bit. John Malkovich? I mean, the, he just seems like such a weirdo freak, but amazing guy that you want to be around. Like, that was Miller. Um, I didn't get a chance, by the way, for those who asked at the memorial to tell the Miller story I've been saving. Should also mention that apparently I've told that story before on the show and totally forgotten about it, but I think I might have cleaned it up a little bit. If someone reminds me, and I won't do it at the end of this one, I'll maybe save it for the end of the year. And it's nothing special. It's just like truly one of those, I am slapping my forehead saying, this cannot have actually happened, uh, Robin Miller's stories. And it is a thousand percent not safe for work. No children, earmuffs. Like if you do that, I'm calling Child Protective Services on you if you listen to that story with your child present. Um Remind me, and I'll, I'll tell that later in the year, maybe December, uh, when I've had uh, some alcohol-infused eggnog. Uh, oh, man. I have no idea uh, for me. Um, I don't know. Uh, Jack Black, maybe? Uh, I think you need to be a little bit taller. But anyways, um, yeah. John Malkovich and Jack Black. That sounds like an amazing movie, uh, regardless. Let's see. Uh, Robert. Suddeth, who has a first name of Jerry, Jerry Robert Suddeth. It's a bit of a lyrical name there, Jerry. You need to thank your parents, by the way. Miss seeing you, too. Uh, hopefully I'll get back to Mid-Ohio sometime soon, but uh, 
Hope you're doing well. It says, where would you rate Ryan Hunter Ray in terms of the best drivers this century? Wow. Great question. You can't ignore how many wins he had, right? Like 15 with Andretti Autosport, obviously won the Indy 500. Uh, so that's, you know, not too bad for a career achievement. But uh, I'm trying to remember. He had a couple, one or two, if I remember, in uh, in Champ Car, I think. A um, couple of wins there. I mean, a guy, I take that back, IndyCar, I think it was, oh, sorry, it's 15 with Andretti. Obviously had that uh, pretty famous one back in the day in the uh, ethanol-sponsored uh, Ray Hollerman Lanigan hot rod. Um, what else did he win? Well, whatever the numbers were with whomever, I apologize. Um, 20 IndyCar wins, right? That's not a small number. That's a pretty serious one. Couple of lean years to close, right? His time with Andretti, I get that. But like you look up his stats, and you just see an awful lot of number ones in there. Even if things slowed in that regard, especially the latter parts of the the two thousands and the early to mid um, teens. This guy is winning a heck of a bunch. Uh, someone you always had to game plan for, always had to factor into who is going to win, who is going to be on the podium. I mean, even what as recently as 2018, couple wins, fourth in the standings, bunch of seconds. Um, I don't know where we put him if we're talking, you know, New century, new millennium, let's do the cutoff at 2000 and move on from there. You know, he came in in, what, 2003, I believe. Um, Drove for a guy I used to work for as a race engineer and and whatnot. Uh, Keith Hilton in Form Atlantic came out of that in 2002, I believe. Um, Feels like top 10 for sure. I mean, we could probably rattle off a bunch of the names of, if we're talking the best of this century, um, right? Obviously, you're going to go to a Dixon, a Frankiti, a, uh, a Bourdais. Um, you know, we got to throw in a Will Power for sure, an Elio. Um, you know, I think there's some, some names we can throw in for sure where you go, yeah, no doubt. I don't know if I put him in front of um, all of those names or, or many of those names, and I don't think that's speaking in a disrespectful tone, but there's no doubt that the guy was a badass and won a lot of races and was the leader of Andretti Autosport for many, many, many years um, and was one of the series' higher-profile Drivers then won a championship, then won an Indy 500. Uh, yeah, uh, I'd say without taking, you know, without doing a, a real forensic look, top 12 for sure, top 10, top 12. And where he falls in there, uh, I'd have to look more to know. But I would say he's not at the bottom of that 12 for sure. Uh, where do we go next? Uh, Austin Sutton says, do you know of any teams confirmed to participate in the new USF Junior Series 
announced as the step prior to USF 2000. I like the idea of a more attainable entry into American open wheel racing. I do not Austin. I need to learn more about that specific topic, who, how, how many, etc. Some questions that I've seen about it. What is it? Why do we really need another junior open wheel? This, that, and the other. If you think of the one thing that has been a limitation for Anderson promotions and their three tier road to Indy, which has just become a two tier with Indy lights going back to Indy car, but then just became a three step ladder as well with USF juniors. Um, we're talking about a situation where, uh, their rivals, good rivals, good people is what I mean. Uh, Perella motorsports holding those running the, uh, FR America's series. And, uh, I guess what I'll always say is USF four. Um, they haven't really had on the Anderson promotion side, a USF four equivalent, a true just starting out in open wheel wings and slicks thinking of trying to one day become an IndyCar driver type uh, solution. Uh, their rival, they have. And so as a result, uh, the, the F4 level been pretty darn successful. Uh, not saying it's always had crazy grids, but just saying in general, it was a clear message being sent that is a good thing. USF 2000, your first step here on the road to India is awesome. It's also a pretty serious step and pretty expensive. What's the bridge between USF 2000 and karting? Eh, you can make that leap for sure. Plenty have, but just would there be more who could come on to the road to Indy if there was something in between that you offered that built right up Indy pro 2000 Indy lights and on to IndyCar. Those folks, for the most part, who've been somewhere in the middle, maybe not having all the money uh, as a USF 2000 demands, they've been going over to Perella Motorsports Holding and doing F4. This, to me, USF Juniors, it's effectively uh, their F4 series. And so I think with this, we have, or they have, we who've been wondering if they would ever do it, have said, okay, come here, one-stop shopping. Do your carting, and then guess what? We can run you all the way up. And then when it's time for Indy Lights, again, we're not running that anymore, but, you know, this is uh, where you go, and this is where we launch you into. Uh, I think, Austin, this is a really smart thing that Dan Anderson's done. Um, mentioned it to me a little while ago. Um, you know, keep it to yourself, which it did. And just really happy to see this development for him. Last thing I'll mention here before moving on and get into a couple more questions before we say farewell. Dan Anderson and his daughter, Michelle Kish, who run Anderson Promotions, they never, ever, 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 ever get enough credit. Uh, Dan, in the construction business, very successful. I won't talk about his wealth, but I'm just saying he is very successful. Loves motor racing, has run motor racing teams just as a regular team owner. Uh, funded them out of his pocket. Uh, very generous, very amazing. He doesn't need any of this. <laughs> he doesn't have to own or run 
USF Juniors, USF 2000, Indy Pro 2000. Doesn't have to do any of it. Could just simply run his construction business, live an amazing life, uh, fly to every IndyCar race or whatever other race, get the best seats in the house, and just be the world's number one fan with no headaches, no added complications from trying to run racing series and build, you know, order cars and di- all that stuff. But he does. So I don't know. I hope at some point in time, and I certainly need to do more to shed light on how incredible Dan is. Uh, and Michelle happens to be just people where while we're looking back and remembering people and, or being thankful for what they have done or continue to do. Um, Dan Anderson is like top shelf, amazing person who enriches our sport deals with a lot of headaches as too many people saying critical things about him or what they do. Uh, I just don't know if they fully understand the guy could walk away tomorrow. We would all be devastated by how things crumbled and how the ladder completely fell apart because of it. Uh, But instead, he spends his own money, invests in this, invests in future stars. Sometimes when their money comes up short, you know, you've seen some Anderson construction or whatever it's called, logos on the cars. That's because he's coming out of pocket trying to help bridge the gap. Like, it's just truly... One of the, the, I don't know if I should say unsung heroes of IndyCar racing and open wheel racing, but undersung. Is that even a thing? I don't know. Let's see. Let's go to paleblue.24. says, I really loved your Instagram video, the bare bones to Lara chassis. Do you know IndyCar is specifically, specifically looking to change when designing a new chassis besides improving safety? Uh, also, I'd love to see a live in-person Q&A, Q&A or demo in the future. Similar to the Instagram video. Uh, maybe with Mike Holler, another engineer. Uh, you also close by saying thanks and keep up the great content. You bet. Um, I would never suggest that I know more than Mike or other active race engineers today. We'll just share that as a former race engineer, um, I could probably handle your Q&A too. Um, I don't know what all IndyCar is looking for here. And when I say all, I, that's what I mean. I don't know what... Every little thing they're looking for happens to be, but weight reduction is certainly one because we know the uh, kinetic energy recovery system is going to add a heck of a bunch of weight. Um, think about this. IMSA, which is adding a spec KERS system to their car, their prototypes for 2023, lower power, 40 horsepower or so, which would suggest they don't need a giant battery to store that in a single KERS solution, just off of the rear axle charging under braking. IndyCar, as we understand, is aiming for about 100 electronic horsepowers, suggests that they might need a bigger battery to contain all of that, therefore heavier, we would think. Believe they're going to be doing a dual Formula One-style KERS system, one that... Charges off the rear axle, familiar, See, seen that plenty, but also something off of a turbo, heat, exhaust, something that can be used on ovals. So in theory, again, two KERS solutions in place. The IMSA 
overall package of the motor generator unit, the battery, the actual mechanical bit that fits within the bell housing that does the spinning up and yada, 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 they're anticipating a 100-pound addition to their LMDH prototypes in 2023. If they're 40 horsepower comparatively simple, Kerr's solution is 100 pounds, I don't know what IndyCars would be. I would just say that if it's at 100 or less, wow, that's going to be some amazing technology. So I would think it would be a bit heavier and adding a hundred plus pounds potentially on top of the 58, we'll just call it 60 pounds. The arrow screen brings, it's just a lot of heft to handle. So I think chassis wise, new chassis with the main driver, call it the survivor cell, the tub, the chassis, the cockpit, the whatever. I think there's going to be efficiencies sought there for weight I don't know how much weight you take out of the rest of the car unless you're going to some exotic materials, magnesium, everything. Um, But weight is going to be a big thing they're going to need to and want to get rid of uh, to counteract the Kerr's weight. Safety, as you mentioned, is something that they're certainly going to be looking to improve. Um, Aesthetics, I hope, and I've been pleading with jay raise the nose a little bit the only thing that my eye does not get super happy about when i look at the uh, current car the uak 18 so one thing that they really couldn't change with the uh, bodywork updates in 2018 and that was the and the tub itself uh just that kind of low sloping nose i just don't think it looks particularly great historically a little bit of a raised nose tends to i don't know i think it just makes the car look better so i hope 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 that is something that uh, they end up doing but we will um we'll see if that's the direction they're going to go beyond that i don't know if we're going to see any major revolutions in my most recent conversation with jay about hey new car what are you thinking what do you want to do what don't you want to do the things we just discussed safety taking off weight again maybe little aesthetic changes that's the mindset uh we're gonna do something rattle radical we're gonna have a 29 speed gearbox uh there's gonna be no pedals uh braking and acceleration's all gonna be by thought man like you know i don't know of any of that stuff coming so i think unless there are changes to this general mindset I don't know if we're going to be breaking a lot of other technological ground um, with the rest of the car. Uh, Ed Joris, you're asking about which IndyCar or or which, quote, rookies, the 20 uh, will participate in Formula One's Friday F1 practice sessions next season, which IndyCars will get invited. I mean, uh, invited's an interesting thing. I don't know who's going to get the invite. Who do I think might actually get it? I mean, you got to think Pato, from what I understand, he drives for a team that just might have a Formula One uh, effort. Of course, there's the story we posted somewhat recently on Racer about Andretti Autosport looking. Of course, we know there's always been rumors of could Haas F1 or some other American-themed 
Formula One team look at a, a Colton Herta? Well, hey, I mean, if Michael Andretti buys a Formula One team, would it be crazy to think Colton Herta uh, might be someone considered for that, knowing that he certainly raced in Europe, hasn't been to all the tracks by any means, but is not totally unfamiliar with everything there. So, you know, uh, beyond those two, I can't really think of any others. Marcus Erickson, that's who I think. Uh, we're we're going to pass him off as a rookie and see if we can make that happen. Ryan Terpstra, you see, Alex Pillow is the new Scott Dixon. Colton Herta is the new Will Power. Tell me why I'm right or wrong. What I want to know, and you often don't include in such things like this, Ryan, because I think you enjoy the the vagueness. You never explain your thinking on things like this. So I think part of your joy is seeing how I interpret or trying to break the code on what you're getting at here. So Alex Plows is the new Scott Dixon. Um, I don't see that in some ways his consistency in results super extra dixon-esque keep in mind dixon was not always that guy he really learned that heavily from our man dario franchiti or dario gave him a master class in how he will take championships off you year after year with seconds thirds fourths and fifths uh, instead of always going for the win, but potentially crashing or losing spots. Uh, so Polo, silky smooth, consistent, almost error-free this year. So I could see that in some commonalities with Dixon. Blazing, holy cow, everyone just pull in and park. He is uncatchable speed. That's a Dixon thing. That's a probably the most Dixon thing. This guy just put a molly whopping on everybody, and why bother? Have not seen that from Alex. Love him. Probably listening now. Love you, Alex. Member of the Prude Listener Group, for those who don't know. So uh, your reigning IndyCar champ is a member of our podcast listener group. Um, haven't seen that from him. He hasn't seen that from himself uh, he wants to show that. He wants to do that. Haven't seen that. So if I'm talking the defining Scott Dixon trait, obviously six-time champ can never overlook that. Indy 500 winner certainly can't overlook that. Whenever Scott Dixon retires, the thing I will remember most about him is not the six titles or the Indy 500 win. It's the days. And oh my gosh, there have been so many days where he was the fastest man on the planet. Go home. Don't bother. If Alex has that within himself, he's still young, right? I mean, he's a champ at 20, nothing, right? He's still a baby. If he within however much growth he has left in his career, both in speed and consistency, right? He can always get better in a lot of areas, but if he can show us that, if he, Pato has shown us that, Colton Herta has shown us that, Alex Rossi has shown us that, Joseph Newgarden has shown us that, right? If he can show us that he has that, not just once, but, you know, once or twice a year and can do that consistently, I will 
buy into your he's the new Scott Dixon assertion. Colton Hurt is the new Will Power. I can see that on the pull-in, days over, this is a willpower race, no one else can touch him. Yes, I can see that between the two. The willpower, how many additional wins and championships would you have if you approached your racing in a different manner? Zero related here. So that's why I'm I'm struggling. Uh, I'm halfway there on the Dixon Pelot. Probably not more than 10% on the herd of power. Um, if Will ends up retiring with the record for all-time polls, which I think he will, um, and that's the kind of big career-long record to mention, that's not the one most drivers are chasing. They're looking for the career victories. They're looking for the, oh, you're a six-time champ, Dixon? Well, come and get it because I'm an eight-time. Got the most polls. It's amazing. It tells you how fast he was. Power's story, as it sits right now, and it's been this way for many years, one-time champ? Or should we be talking about a three, four, five-time champ? Why aren't we talking about Will Power, the three, four, or five-time IndyCar champion? Indy 500 wins, amazing. Again, it adds another level to his legacy as a champ. One title, one Indy 500 win. Amazing on Saturdays and time trials. Bit of a short bit of a sparky blown fuse when it comes to putting together entire seasons. And so I don't know if I could throw that at Colton Herta three years in his Andretti Autosport team being a little bit unpredictable in terms of quality and output over the last two, but what he finished was the third, I think last season in the standings or whatever it was third, fourth, whatever, but was right there in true title contention. The team took a bit of a step back this year. He rallied on a couple occasions, but anyways, I don't know if I see that, man. Um, But we'll keep talking. Uh, Let's see, where else do I go here before I start to say farewell? Uh, Clay Williams, Marshall, I noticed Texas Motor Speedway was back on schedule. Last couple of races have been horrible because of that PJ1 track compound. Do you know Firestone's planning on testing at Texas? Is it even possible for Firestone to create a new compound that could improve racing there? Um, I mean, the track has been vocal in saying NASCAR is our number one priority. Makes sense. They bring the most money, most fans, most everything. NASCAR says they want that compound. NASCAR is going to get it. Y'all are going to have to deal with it. I don't know what Firestone could do other than someone who suggested making their tires out of PJ1 compound, which I love, might be the best suggestion ever. Um, This is a track-based limitation. I can't hang that on Firestone. Again, of course, they could always do better, et cetera, et cetera, you know, all those things. This isn't on them. Um, 
it's weird. Last couple of races there haven't been awesome. Super processional. Um, I don't know. Uh, races that aren't fun to watch year after year because of one thing that has nothing to do with the cars racing there or the vendors who provide the things on those cars like Firestone. Yeah, it's a question Roger Penske and his team are going to have to oppose to themselves if they're really interested in putting on the best show. Steve Grinstead. I probably should have asked this sooner. I apologize. I suck or read this sooner. Said MP, let's suppose Toyota becomes a third engine supplier. Which teams do you think would be making the change? Um, let me look at the list of teams here because we're late in the show and my brain's not working too much. The natural for the, the new manufacturer would be the teams who don't feel like they are getting all the love they believe they deserve from their current manufacturer and or who are just naturally at the bottom of the depth chart for whatever reason. Uh, that's where the, we should be treated better. See, yeah, we could win if we had a better manufacturer. Yeah, if the new one comes in, yeah, see, we're going to beat the world. That's my old timey uh, movie voice, by the way. So I'm going to try and do that every episode uh, for no particular reason. Well, so who fits? Um, Ray Hall Letterman Lanigan jumps out, right? Uh, they are and have been an important part of the Honda family for a long time. Are they more important? And I'm talking in terms of results and or embrace than your now back-to-back series champions at Chip Ganassi Racing? Absolutely not. Uh, would they be ahead of Andretti Autosport, whose drivers, again, have been at or near the top five, six, uh, you know, contributing a number of wins as well across multiple drivers? No. Um, I don't think they would be received in that manner. I'm not saying they aren't. I'm just trying to look at how they might be received. Um, Dale Coyne Racing, even though they didn't win this year, sure gave a pretty strong run with Groshawn a number of races. Honda fell in love with him. Um, Meyer Shank Racing, uh, they're pretty darned Honda. I don't foresee anything changing there their relationship extends into sports cars as well. Um, trying to look elsewhere just on the Honda side. Um, Dale coin for sure. Uh, obviously if they're running Takuma Sato for a year or two, that might be a little bit complicated, uh, with their Honda engines, but would day is Dale not the first person to feel like he isn't getting enough respect and deserves more, 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 and would be talking to a third manufacturer if it was a quality manufacturer? Absolutely. I mean, it's in his best interest to always seek the best for himself and his team. Uh, I think with Romain and formerly with our man Bourdais, I think that they were held in about as high a regard as they ever have been and maybe will be within Honda. So, I'd say coin for sure. I'd say RLL is one that stands out as a potential big team that could be a team leader there. Um, we'll say that on the Andretti side, right? Michael started off as Chevy, uh, moved to Honda. We've heard, obviously, they're open to switching back to Chevy. Is that just been a ploy to get Honda to improve their deal? Uh, wouldn't be a surprise, but, you know, folks are only as loyal as 
the incentives that they have. And if the incentive is our engine's the best, well, you'd be dumb to move away from that. Is the money the best? You'd be dumb away to move from that. Would you want to see what someone else might give you? Probably. Is Michael in a position, I would say, though, to say, yeah, we're going to go to a new manufacturer and at least there are question marks as to whether they're going to be fully competitive? I don't know if his sponsors or drivers would be open to that unless there was some sort of however they might have learned that the new Honda or Chevy motors are making X amount of horsepower and the new Toyotas or whatever brand it might be are you know, plus 20 horsepower on top of that and same reliability. Um, I think you might get a pretty hard pushback uh, from a lot of the Andretti Autosport drivers about that contractually when it came time to renew. Would also just close the Andretti topic here of, uh, hey, I just mentioned that Groschon guy, uh, fairly convinced that Honda was a central player in making sure that uh, he stayed in their camp and went to uh, Andretti. So that one might be hard to convert as they sit right now. So on the Honda side, I would say RLL jumps out as like, yeah, that would actually be a really good acquisition for Toyota uh, in terms of a partner team. Um, also, Dale Coyne Racing. On the Chevy side, you'd have to think of Foyt. They've been Toyota in the past. Uh, and I don't know, depending on who's driving uh, for them, whether there would be really appealing to Toyota or any other leading manufacturer coming in right now. Uh, Aero McLaren SP, obviously they're Chevy. They've done great things with Chevy. Um, do I feel like their approach to racing is one where they are betrothed to one brand, period? No. So uh, while I don't think Aero McLaren SP is open to questions as to their competitiveness, are we going to have to step back a year or two as, as third manufacturer really gets up to speed? That seems like it would be a bit of a mismatch with where they are in terms of progress, growth, potential, and so on. If that third manufacturer showed itself to be amazing within a short amount of time and their contract was up with whomever their current partner happens to be, do I think uh, Zach Brown and the leadership there would say, hey, third manufacturer uh you you really need to have us absolutely again like i mentioned with coin you know they don't wake up saying how can we make a optional partner happy uh it's how do we be the best and if there's another optional partner we can go with that's going to make us be the best we're going to go be the best with them uh not every team has the the ability to be that free and open with switching but um I wouldn't think they'd be the first in line, but I think they would certainly be ready to step in uh, when that manufacturer was ready. Uh, Carlin, again, I would say would certainly be one to stand out that would benefit uh, definitely from a, a third manufacturer involvement. I don't think Ed Carpenter Racing is ever going to stop being uh, Apple Pie and Chevrolet. Hunkos Hollinger Racing, I think they might be open for sure. Um, you know, they're never going to be particularly high up on anyone's depth chart, at least until they prove that they're worthy of it just because they're newness and everything else. Team Penske, eh, I'm thinking Roger's probably not going to switch away from the brand that, uh, or from the 
what he introduced to the sport and the manufacturer behind it all, the uh, supplier that uh, he helped fund. So I don't think we're going to see that change away from Chevy. I guess the the one obvious one that stands out, and I know I mentioned uh, Dale Coyne having an interest. Well, there's only one team in the paddock that I can think of uh, that has a Toyota slash Lexus alliance, and that is Vassar Sullivan, which co-enters with Dale Coyne. Um, that would be kind of the obvious thing, right? If uh, of the various options, uh, could a Vassar Sullivan be, you know, a ready and instant partner with someone they already dance with? Yes. Would it be with Coin? They've told us that they want to go out on their own as soon as they can. They'd need to build out a full team to do that. So, again, uh, would an RLL or similar be a, a great kind of anchor team? And then some smaller developing type teams uh, be something to build with? I think so. All right, uh, going to grab one or two more, and then I am going to say farewell. Uh, what do, let's see. Higher Lee, David Steffel, you are talking about uh, Pietro Fittipaldi. Higher, you're asking, is he in contention for uh, anything at DCR? Heard nothing about it. Uh, David, you mentioned who's in consideration for the coin and Vassar Sullivan rides. A lot. Uh, going to put that into a silly season post here that I hope is um, imminent. <laughs> trying to be um, trying to be someone who puts that stuff into my client's domain first before I do it here. So I apologize there. Uh, Andrew Miller, Beth Preda runs a lights program with Jamie Chadwick next year, or she runs five IndyCar races with Simona, which is more likely. What's the likelihood of either? Um, great question. Don't know. Saw Beth briefly at Long Beach and tried to connect and failure on my end meant to reach out to her soon ish and hopefully get some direction or thoughts here. I would love nothing more than to hear that Preda Autosport is running Jamie in Indy Lights or IndyCar. Um, I'd also love nothing more than to hear she gets to do whatever amount of races with Simona. I just don't have a feel as for whether both are likely or unlikely at this point. Ignorance on my part, something that I will indeed try and solve as soon as I can. Uh, Jeremy Bullard said, do you see any way Tony Kanaan could end up in the uh, 22 Penske car for the Indy 500 if a Kyle Larson or AJ Allmendinger isn't available? And if so, would the fourth Penske ride be better than, say, a fifth Chip Ganassi car? Wow. I love your thinking, Jeremy, because it's like 3D IndyCar chess. And I'm, I, I barely know how to play 1D IndyCar checkers. I think Tony Kanon, if we're going to see him in the Indy 500, it's probably going to be with Chip Ganassi Racing, knowing that he signed a two-year contract to do the ovals. Um, if that were to fall apart because Jimmy Johnson wants to be in the ovals, I, I'm not fully feeling as to whether Roger would go the route of putting a fourth car in the field um, unless he thinks felt that that driver was truly going to go out and be able to win for him. 
Do I think Tony could win? Yes. Do I think Roger Penske would look at Tony and say, gotta have you, you're going to win for me? I don't know. I've never really gotten that vibe that TK has been coveted by Penske, at least in recent years, when he's certainly been available, right? Um, there have been changes at Team Penske on the IndyCar side. TK, whether it's after Ganassi, after Foyt, after KV, like there's been multiple opportunities for RP to step in and say, hey, uh, come drive for me full-time. Or more recently, hey, probably might only be the Indy GP and the Indy 500, but if he's reached out and I don't know about it, then that's, again, on me. But we'll just say, um, we know the guy can win the Indy 500. I just don't know if Roger sees him as that guy. Uh, I don't know if the Kyle Larson thing is anything more than just a lot of people saying they'd love to see it happen. So I wouldn't mistake that for being like, hey, it's a real possibility. And if RP doesn't go with Kyle or Dinger, then could Tony... I don't see either of any of the three as really being a real, uh, real deal. Uh, as for would the fourth Penske ride be better than a fifth chip car? I don't know. Uh, let's look at how the Indy 500 was uh, finished last year. Um, I would say that at least if we're talking pole position, Scott Dixon did pretty darn good. I know his race didn't end super well. Um, Alex Pillow was second. Um, Joseph Newgarden was a ways back. Uh, Will Power didn't have a great, great day. Pagano ran pretty darn strong, uh, right? Not much negative to say there. Uh, Scotty Mack, I thought, did a, a pretty darn good job, but again, rookie learning. Uh, so not super high expectations there. Um if I think about Erickson, right? I mean, he finished, what, 11th, I think, at the 500 and, you know, pretty darn strong. Um, I'd say, you know, when you look at Tony, and granted, the month wasn't everything that he'd hoped for, but uh, 10th certainly wasn't bad. On average, it sure looks to me like being in a chip car based on 2020, um, that'd be the route I would choose. Uh, where else do I go? Last question. Uh, let's see. Um, oh no, not last question. Jeff Greendike, you say follow up on my question from last week. Um, did your pal Sean Heckman from Dinner with Racers have a chicken sandwich with you at Roscoe's? No, he did not. He had the Scoes number one uh, chicken waffles, kind of what the place is known for. Uh, I went for the Scoes number two, which was a gravy on top, not of the waffle. That'd be gross, but on the chicken. So, uh, but chicken nonetheless. So sticking to the theme there for sure. Uh, love myself some Sean Heckman, by the way, but don't tell him that, you know, uh, we don't say nice things to each other. We only say uh, negative critical things just so y'all think we don't like one another. Um, going to close here with practiced observer from Reddit says MP, you asked that I resubmit this during the off season. So here you go. I love the fact that you basically waited like one week in the off season. So good on you question about the air impact of the former beam wings. Uh, these were carried on the cars prior to the new body kit. So I was looking at pictures of the cars from recent years and noticed that the Panos DP-01, that was the final champ car uh, from 2007, uh, thought to be a car that raced as well, uh, had one uh, as well as uh, F1 pre-2014 cars. 
which is also considered to be a time when the cars raced well. The DW12 also had a beam wing until 2018. Uh, F1 will be allowing beam wings again in 2022. We've said beam wings a lot here. Uh, as part of their efforts to improve how the cars race, does that aerodynamic part have a bigger impact when it gets credit uh, than it gets credit for? And should any car add those back onto the cars in the near future? Yeah, I think a little bit of a, a, a false read here, dear practiced observer. Um, I do not recall a beam wing being on the Panos DPO one. So, uh, by the way, my clickless silent mouse uh, failed. So. I bought one of those somewhat soon into when I started the podcast back in 2016 because of the shocking amount. I didn't know it was a thing. So I'm not, it's not a negative. Just, I didn't know the amount of emails and tweets and others, uh, comments of, would you please buy a silent mouse? Cannot stand hearing your mouse click all the time during the podcast. I'm like, geez, okay. Sorry. 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 Um, it died. It worked for the first minute or two, and then it uh, gave me the middle finger. So, uh, sorry for those who are having to endure um, the clickety-clicks here. So, I'm using my clickety-click mouse to pull up photos of the DPO one. And again, I could be totally wrong. Um, all right. I see what you're talking about. And I realize that I'm talking about visual things on a podcast, Always highly recommended. There's nothing more that folks love than talking about something they can't see during the show. Um, oh, hey, someone stole my photo. That's nice of them. Um, sorry, a little bit of a uh, uh, stream of consciousness here. Um, so beam wing would certainly be something different than the device used to hold up the rear wing um if we're talking the delara dw12 uh, that was originally made and ran for the first however many years through 2017 with the rear wing mounted on top of the attenuator at the back of the car bolted onto the rear of the gearbox that is how uh, the rear wing was mated, married, and installed on the car. Um, what we're talking about here, we're talking beam wing um, on the Delarty W12. Those were not real aerodynamic downforce producing wings. We called them the beam wings just because it's the kind of common nomenclature but those were not like, hey, we're crushing it with downforce. Those were pieces that extended out to hold the rear wheel pods, the Kardashians, as they were nicknamed. Those were truly just form over function, or no, function over form, you idiot. Uh, they were just extending out to hold the rear wheel pods in place. Called them beam wings weren't really wings what we're talking about here say looking at the uh the dpo7 this is something that served two purposes certainly an aerodynamic shape to them but since there were no central mounted pillars like we have with today's indycar 
uh, holding the rear wing up. Um, what this design used were the quote beam wings that extended out, bolted onto the rear wing end plates, and atop those, you know, towards the top of those end plates, stacked multiple rear wing elements. So these items actually carried the rear wing, not what we had with the DW12. Don't want to speak out of turn here. I know that uh, the, the beam wings here did certainly serve an aerodynamic purpose. There's enough aero going on with the car, though, with a pretty cool and aggressive underwing diffuser and some big old wing elements stacked on top there, the back of the car. Um, Again, not saying the beam wings here didn't do anything, but I would not look at them and say, yeah, big player in the car's overall aerodynamics. Um, anything that cleans up the aerodynamic weight coming off the cars, that's going to help in terms of making the racing quote a little bit better. If the air is not super extra turbulent and making the front of the following cars bounce around and be unstable and just make it really hard to see and pass and do a whole bunch of stuff, you're going to get a thumbs up there. The thing that suffered and has suffered in IndyCar is readily admitted since they went to the UAK. That is a deficiency is getting rid not of the beam wings, but the Kardashians, the rear wheel guards. Those were a big aerodynamic help to clean up the air coming off the cars Make it easier for the ones behind to get closer and then try and make a pass. So just say that though they were visual affronts, <laughs> they were visual crimes, uh, ugly as heck, they actually helped the racing. So how do we put those in place without uh, being super ugly? I don't know. Maybe that's the big design challenge for the next chassis that uh, we need to impress upon Jay. How do we come up with invisible Kardashians? Maybe that would be a great solution for uh, TV as well, although I think they're in their final season. But anyways, uh, maybe that's the thing we need. Um, cloaking technology for Kardashians. I'm going to push for that. Friends, that was our show. Thank you for listening. <sighs> do enjoy you do appreciate you. Thank you for sending these in, giving us something fun to do every week. Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, torontomotorsports.com. Many of you, I didn't read all of them because I just wanted to get through the show a little bit faster. All of you who sent in kind words and wishes for my wife as uh, we continue to fight, 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 and get towards a future victory. Thank you for those of you who continue to send in those well wishes with your submissions and those who pray and those who just keep us uh, close to you. So I'm going to speak to you here uh, in another day or two. Uh, by the way, our guest for Thursday's recording of the uh, guest episode, Penske Entertainment CEO, Mark Miles. 